You're listening to a podcast from I'dRatherBeWriting.com. I'm Tom Johnson, and today I am speaking with Jonathan Coleman, who is a content designer uh, at Intercom and based in Dublin. Uh, Jonathan, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself, kind of like you know what you do, where where you're at, a little more than just what I described there? Sure thing, Tom. Uh, first of all, great to be on. Uh, excited to be here. Uh, yeah, so I'm the senior design manager um, at Intercom. My team uh, focuses a lot on our platform, so that's both our developer platform and our analytics platform uh, of Intercom. You can learn more about our design team at intercom.design if you're interested. Um, I've been in Intercom for ooh, a year and a half, coming up on two years. And I uh, live in Dublin, Ireland, but I am American, which is why I don't have an exciting Irish accent. Uh, so uh, I moved here from Seattle uh, back in 2018. And uh, when I was in Seattle, I was working for Facebook, and I was there for about five and a half years or so. Wow, wow. Yeah, I think uh, you mentioned that you're originally from Michigan. Is that right? Yeah, this is actually the Upper Peninsula on my hat here. I'm ah. uh, an old Michigan boy. It's true. That's you know Ireland sounds uh, so so awesome to to live there. I mean, culturally rich and like I can still speak English. Uh, just kind of curious. Do you do you like living there? Yeah, it's actually pretty amazing. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, you know one of the things that really attracted us here was that um, in a lot of ways it's very similar to the Pacific Northwest where we used to live. Um, but, uh, what my wife and I now call the Atlantic Northwest also has the benefit of, uh, sort of being the gateway to Europe. So back when air travel was a thing, uh, we were having a lot of fun exploring, not just Ireland, but the rest of the continent. Um, so, uh, it's been a blast living here and, uh, we're really enjoying it. Well, great, great. Um, so you, the talk that you recently gave at, at the design and content conference really caught my attention because I was wrestling with this problem of value and our disciplines are slightly different, right? You're in content design and I'm more in the technical writing uh, domain. We're still writing. We're working with words, right? Communicating to users and a lot of tech writers do UX writing. So they, they, they do overlap. But, uh, in my posts, I ran across your, your presentation and it was like, it fit perfectly to, this problem that I was trying to figure out, which is how do you raise the value of tech writers in an organization organization? How do you, you know, deliver something that uh, elevates the role of the tech writer? Now, your presentation was called How We Destroyed Content Design. Can you just give us, you know, a high level overview of kind of what what that the gist of it was about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so first of all, actually, I come from tech writing. Uh, I used to write manuals, like printed manuals uh, in SGML uh, for IBM way back in the 90s. Uh, so uh, we, we have some, uh, some history in common. But um, what this talk is about is essentially the key problems that most content design, as we call it in uh, Europe, or content strategy, as we call it in the US teams, uh, tend to face, which is that they're spread way too thin across too great a plane or surface of product work. And so they're always kind of scampering from you know chunks of work to other chunks of work. They're largely limited to just the surface of the products and they don't often get a chance to work deeply. Um, 
no one understands what they do. They're they're always sort of like going from meeting to meeting to meeting during the days, and they don't have uh, what I call maker time. Um, uh, there's less opportunity that they have for product impact because their work isn't really recognized, again, because people either don't know what they do or they don't actually see them doing the work. Um, they also have less opportunity for career growth because most organizations have not sort of figured out, like, what is our plan for content design or content strategy? How do these roles progress? Um, do they progress only by working across a greater and greater surface of products? like ever more thinly at the surface. Well, you know, what does success look like in this role? A lot of orgs haven't figured that out. Uh, there's also unequal pay issues. So content designers, content strategists tend to be paid a lot less uh, than their other colleagues in product, like product designers, product managers, and so on. And because of all those things put together, they tend to burn out quickly. So that's the backdrop for the stock. What the talk is actually about is how we did an experiment over the last year and a half at Intercom where we had content designers work on just one, one product at a time, no more, no less. And so because of that, we were able to solve all of these problems. Um, and by the end of this experiment, um, content designers were uh, working so deeply in product with so much uh, strategy and so much more than just writing words on the surface that they began to look, feel, and act like product designers. Um, if essentially for us, we ended up blurring these two roles together. Uh, and uh, we are content that that was the right choice, at least for us. Um, and so uh, I'm sort of on a mission to tell other people about this because I think this is a good way of working. May not fit every organization, uh, may not fit every content designer for that matter. Um, but for us, it worked out really well, produced much more product impact, solved all those problems. Uh, I mentioned earlier, and we ended up paying content designers more. Uh, in fact, the same as we pay product designers and product managers. Um, so uh, it was just a really fun experiment. The team was game to try new things out. And I think we learned a lot along the way. So that's the talk. Uh, now, uh, as you began the talk, uh, you were relating an experience that you had uh, working at, at Facebook, releasing a, a new app that would kind of interpret music and tell you what was playing, like a Shazam app. And you, you explained how like you missed, you, you were writing the copy that would explain what the feature was and so forth and how it worked, but you missed like this key element of like data privacy that ended up tanking the product. Uh, why do you think you you missed that? Was it because um, you were so scattered and, and diluted across different areas that you couldn't dive deep? Or was it because you didn't think that your role was product design? Uh, probably a bit of both. Um, but like, just to be clear, I missed this because I was not doing my job. Or I was doing it, but not very well. Um, in a lot of ways, this is a talk about failure because I open with that failure. Um, and I talk about uh, uh, the failure of content design or content strategy as an industry to find focus and to solve all of these problems. And then uh, the way the talk ends is also a kind of failure. Um, but uh, I'll, I'll build up some suspense by talking about that a bit later. But um, yeah, I don't think uh, most of us at Facebook thought that that particular product, which as you said, is like a or was like a Shazam app, but built within Facebook. We just didn't think through the people problems very well. 
Um, I take the blame for that. This product did not have a product designer attached to it. I was in the best role to take care of UX issues. But um, as you might guess, I was also working on about nine or 10 other things. Um, I was allocated to something like, uh, I'm gonna say 11 or 12 different PMs. I have no idea how many designers and not just in one area, but in many areas. At the same time, I was working on Facebook's developer platform, their location products, um, uh, a bunch of different things. And so uh, I just completely missed thinking through what is the people problem that this product is supposed to solve. It solved a very clear problem for Facebook at the time, which is that they wanted people to post more, post faster, post more often. And so identifying the music or TV show or movie that was playing nearby you might get you to make that extra post. But there wasn't really a people problem that we identified. And so because of that, I missed all the scenarios uh, and, and just didn't do the thinking for how people would perceive this product and understand this idea of Facebook recording and interpreting things that are happening around you. You know, I, I find it interesting that you would sort of feel a sense of blame or responsibility for a product that doesn't necessarily work or take off. Um, you know, your, your job as a content designer is usually to work with language. You said you mentioned solving a people problem. Do all content designers feel a responsibility for the product's success? I know that a lot of projects I've worked on, sometimes I, sometimes I think maybe it'll work, maybe it won't, you know, but at the end of the day, it's, I didn't design it. You know, I didn't come up with the idea. I didn't fund it. I didn't, you know, do the features and the UX and the re functional requirements. So if it fails, it's not really my problem. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, for me, uh, I really believe in this idea of accountability, personal accountability. Um, I don't think I would learn as much without taking uh, the blame, holding myself accountable for this product's failure. So I may not take it seriously enough or I may not uh, uh, do enough sort of personal digging, like mining through you know, where did the problems actually occur? What could have gone better unless I take personal accountability for it? Accountability is one of these words, uh, incidentally, just like as a side note, that often gets like used like a weapon. It's like, uh, you know, roll D6 for initiative. It's time to use the accountability spell. Like this is a terrible way of thinking about accountability. Um, no one should think about it like that. I find accountability to be much more like a warm blanket. It's something you wrap yourself in so you make sure that you understand others' expectations of you, what your expectations are of yourself, and you hold yourself accountable uh, to reaching some standard or goal or outcome or whatever it is you're trying to do. Um, so uh, I can't speak for all content designers or, or teams or design teams. You know, I, I wouldn't pretend to know how they think about this stuff. But um, for me, uh, back then and also now, um, I, I think it's very appropriate <laughs> to yeah. hold myself accountable for a very clear failure just in, in my work. I'm, I'm curious to, to know if this sense of like commitment to the product is integral in playing this role that you pivoted to at Intercom where you blend the boundaries between content and product design. If you had a content designer who didn't have that sense of hey, I own the, the success of this product or I'm a key part of the success of this product. If they don't have that mentality, will this new model work that you're describing? Thank you for asking that. And the answer is no, they won't. Um, I think as an industry, 
content design kind of strategy, UX writing, whatever we sort of call ourselves doing this type of work, um, we've often sort of been chasing after design. And uh, we, you know, we want to be recognized in the same way as designers. We want to be valued. We want to be paid in the same way and so on. And there's sort of this goal of like, oh, let's let's get to a point where one, we are on equal footing with design. We have, you know, equal hiring, equal allocation. Um, like we want our, our organizations to view us just like they view designers. And I think that's the wrong approach. What I think both content designers and product designers should be doing is actually instead of chasing after one another is actually to chase after product. So that's product strategy, product management, product direction, vision, outcomes, goals, and so on. Uh, the more that we tack towards product, the more successful uh, those products are going to be, the more successful those organizations or companies are going to be, and by extension, all of us as well. Um, we shouldn't be uh, scrambling, fighting with each other over the crumbs. We should be going where the real focus is, and that is on product. I, I I really like this thread that we're following here. You know, this this investment in product and the deep focus. Um, I'm sort of wondering, like, uh, you know, with product comes a lot of stuff that's going to be outside of actually writing. Uh, you know, doing user analysis and research and industry comparison and, uh, and, you know, gathering all the different requirements, documents and other planning, resourcing and timelining, roadmap planning. Is that something that you really want to do? I mean, isn't your heart in like content design? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. But, but to what end, right? Like, um, I, I don't do this work to write the words or, you know, if I'm a product designer to draw the boxes, um, you know, that's fun and all, but you know, it, it, it the thrill fades pretty quickly. Um, what I think we all really want to do or the reason why we do what we do is to try to solve problems. That is like the one thing that all of these roles have in common, whether you're a, an engineer, product designer, content center, product manager, whatever it is you're doing, you're trying to identify a problem, understand it with, pretty big degree of depth um, and then uh, conceive of solutions that you validate and test um, to try to solve it. That's where the fun part is. Um, I don't want to ship something and say, hey, look at that word. I I wrote that word. I want to ship something that solves a problem for people. And then I want to see those people using it and being like, oh, my God, I used to have this problem. And now I don't. This is amazing. (laughs) Because with software, we can do that, and we can do it quickly, and it's actually kind of manageable. Uh, not just manageable, but magical. Uh, so for me, that's that's where the energy comes in. Again, wouldn't pretend to speak for others, but uh, that's why, uh, or one of the reasons why I think we should tack towards mm. product uh, more so than just design. Interesting, interesting. You know, I, it, it's so hard to really wrap my mind around some of these some of these things um definitely i think investment in the product and solving the problem are huge but what if you find yourself in a product that you don't really believe in uh i mean for example let's let's give a really concrete example i work a lot on fire tv apps like for develop documentation for developers and one of the huge like things that we're pushing out is voice interactivity people want to be able to tell your TV what you want to watch and you know, you don't have to use the remote. But sometimes I think 
you know, I kind of like the remote. I, I don't really want to be talking to my TV. But I still have to write the documentation that explains how to enable this. And there are some use cases for sure where typing like what you want to watch in with a remote and hitting an alphabetical letter to type in the show, you know, to search is just really painful. But I'm just wondering, what do you do if you don't 100% believe in the product, but you're still sort of obligated to uh, sell it, kind of? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, in in tech, we have this idea of, uh, like, disagree but commit. And I think a lot of us take a lot of time to do that. It, does that sound familiar, like this idea yeah. of disagreeing and commit? Yeah. Um, but before the commit part comes, there is the part of disagreeing. And I think people often weaponize uh, this idea of disagreeing commit to really just focus on the commit part. Um, for us, it's actually really important to dig deep on the disagree part. Um, when you think that you're not solving a real people problem, when you think that the problem maybe isn't as important uh, as another problem that you could be solving instead, like if if you think what uh, maybe you know the company determines as impact is not in fact impactful, then um, you owe it to yourself and and to your team and the company to disagree um, and to try to make the case for why things should be different. Um, and I think a lot of us uh, often uh, we're not supported when we disagree. Um, we we don't maybe know how to disagree, uh, or we're worried that you know maybe people will laugh at us, or they'll disagree with us in turn, or uh, uh, that we'll just be plain wrong or, or dumb, or this could be like a, a career limiting move. Um, for us, we've created a safe space where it's okay to do that, um, but I know that's not the case everywhere. So what I would encourage people to do would be um, to uh, try to create that space. Find others who disagree, start building your case, present it thoughtfully, signal that you're willing to commit, um, but at least force the conversation and have the argument. Yeah, and th that's definitely uh, an awesome culture, right, to, to, to be able to disagree and present that. And um, I think one of the reasons I've been hesitant to, to really come out and disagree on different projects, I just use that one as an example, um, is because I haven't. I don't have the research. I don't have the data, right? I, I kind of assume somebody else who's a lot more, uh, who's got a lot more research than I do and can see the big business impact and see that, oh yeah, this is, you know, this is selling our product, uh, is making decisions that are probably wiser from a business point of view than, than my limited decisions. So as a content designer, how do you deal with that? If you don't necessarily have the research, but you might think, I think the product should go X direction. How do you build a case for that? Yeah, you know, it, it's true. There's probably always going to be some missing piece of context or just something you don't know. And, you know, that's normal and natural and okay. Happens all the time to me. Um, so one thing that I think is important just in terms of establishing a, a good culture is just to be okay with being wrong. Um, and not just, you know, you yourself, but... Um, for maybe the people who manage you or maybe the people who, you know, write your performance reviews or provide feedback um, to let them know that like, hey, it's okay to be wrong. Like, I want to poke at this argument. I want to poke at this problem. I want us to make sure we are all aligned. I may say dumb things, but that's because I don't know. I'm trying to learn. And a lot of times, I, at least I have found in my very limited experience, 
if I have a question about something, I bet other people have that same question. <laughs> so I think it's totally okay to ask dumb questions. I, I usually just phrase it exactly like that. Like, hey, I've got a dumb question, but... <laughs> so, uh, that you know, hey, it works for me. Um, your mileage may vary. But I think this is all part of the, taking that tack toward product. Um, because, uh, you know... I don't want I don't want to trust someone's opinion or their judgment or their actions just because of their title. Maybe they're a director or a senior product manager or, or someone like that. I have no idea. But like I, I don't want to do what they say just because they've got some words after their name. Um, instead, I, I want them to make a coherent case. I want them to make the argument for why we should do things in this way by this priority. We should build this instead of that. Um, and so oftentimes you're doing that person a favor if you uh, try to ask about, you know, why are we doing this? One of the things we do uh, as designers is we, I think of it as a game, probably shouldn't, but I do. <laughs> I think of it as a game. Uh, we, we do the five whys. We just keep asking why until we're all clear mm -hmm. on the answer. And that often helps us break things down a lot, deconstruct arguments and get to what we call first principles thinking. So the five whys uh, is something, you know, I would encourage everyone to use. Um, but you do have to have that culture of, you know, being okay with saying dumb things and, and just sort of psychological safety. And more than anything else, just that asking questions does not signal dissent. Oops. I just poured water <laughs> over everything. Oops. That's what happens when I get excited and talk with my hands. Okay. But yeah, asking questions does not signal dissent. Like we're actually just trying to build a better thing. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Sorry, do you have water all over your computer? Do you need to like rush? No, and... no, no. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> Maybe I didn't spill that much. I think it's okay. Okay. You know, um, I'm really fascinated by this in part because I, I feel like I am a deep thinker. I like to engage on things at a deeper level. Um, you know, I've met a lot of different tech writers and people have varying levels of how much they want to engage. And I feel like I could focus uh, in a lot more depth on one product. And if I did want to say, hey, this is the wrong direction, I wouldn't just kind of throw it out there willy-nilly because I know I'd be run over or ignored. Uh, but instead, I'd want to do research, you know, really understand it, be like, come with a really informed opinion. Now, in order to do that, I would have to stop working on other projects because, as you mentioned at the start, we have a lot of things. We're being pulled in different ways. You don't really have time to engage deeply. Uh, so you don't have time to make this kind of informed dissent. How did you at Intercom somehow disconnect from these other projects to narrow it down to one? I mean, what did these other teams do? Yeah, so we made some hard calls. Um, those you know teams that used to have like a smidgen, if you will, of content design support, you know, after we made this change, had none, and so we had to choose our priorities. Um, but but like backing up to like how this actually happened. Um, when I was interviewing with Intercom, uh, the person who had become my director, it's this fellow named Emmett Connolly, he asked me, hey, how do you build a world-class design, content design team? What does it look like if your content design team is, you know, like truly top-notch? Like, what does your dream content design team look like? <laughs> and I didn't have a great answer. It's amazing they hired me. Um, <laughs> And I kept thinking about it after the interview and when I went back home to the States and later after taking the job, when I was uh, meeting people in the organization and learning about how content design was done in Intercom was still on my mind. Um, and I recalled something that happened while I was at Facebook. 
So my manager there was a woman named Ella Mayon Harris, and uh, she had this bright idea that um, content strategists, as Facebook calls them, could be more effective if they just worked on one product at a time. But Facebook has like now probably more than 400 content strategists. Uh, my guess is that they have the largest team in the world. I, I don't really know. But all those content strategists tend to work on many different things at once, like I did when I was there. But Ella's idea was, hey, let's let's start small and just do a test. So she just took a few people on her team and moved them to support just one product at a time. And that meant that other teams suddenly had to make do without a content strategist. Um, we supported them by giving them you know, tools, ways of doing self-serve, uh, UX writing and UI content. Um, but where uh, Ella focused content strategists on her team was on the most important, you know, highest priority, highest impact efforts. And uh, so when I came to Intercom, just by asking that question in the interview, that signaled to me that Intercom's leadership are interested in experimentation and in change and in figuring out, hey, regardless of what we currently do, what might work better? And so that's how I framed this argument to them. We should try this as an experiment. Let's do it for six months. Um, and let's see what the actual outcomes are. Let's challenge ourselves to set priorities and figure out which of all of our, you know, our, our broad array of products are the most important to us and the ones that most need content design support to succeed. And then let's set up those content designers to succeed in bringing that success about. And so we got uh, our content designers to work on just one product at a time. We checked in constantly, and over the course of six months, we decided that this was working so well, we should just keep on doing it. Uh, and that continued uh, until COVID-19 hit, the coronavirus was everywhere, our business was impacted, and uh, we ended up having to lay off our uh, content design team. And so that's the third failure that I alluded to earlier uh, in our conversation. Uh, and that's why, that's really why the talk is called How We Destroyed Content Design, because we did build this idea of this world-class team, and I think we were really effective and working really well. Uh, and then something unexpected happened that just dislodged and disheveled everything. Um, and so we had to let those content designers go. I'm hopeful that they will take their experiences to their new places. They've all found jobs, which is great. Um, hopeful that they can take these ideas to their new organizations, um, and maybe start this experiment over there, starting small, but then perhaps working more broadly this way. Because for us, it was really successful, and we learned a lot from doing it. And just this idea of challenging the status quo was a really powerful one for us, which, again, is why we want to share it with everyone. Well, do you think the the layoffs uh, had any relationship with the model, this, this content product design model? Or, like, if you had stayed in the traditional model... Uh, would everybody have been laid off as well? Uh, I think so. Um, that was one of the questions uh, I asked uh, after finding out about this, and we talked about quite a bit. Um, for us, because all of our teams are so small, like, you know, I, I came from Facebook, which is this you know, massive global corporation, uh, to Intercom, which is much smaller, much earlier in its maturity. Um for us, it, it was more about specialist roles, and content designers were not the only ones who were laid off. Many people uh, from across the entire company were, but um, what we found is that in order to succeed at sort of our core things, we just simply couldn't afford specialist roles anymore. Um, 
and uh, and that was really sad. I'm still upset about it. Um, but I'm grateful uh, for all the support that Intercom gave our content designers and all these other roles I mentioned um, in terms of landing on their feet, finding their next jobs, um, and supporting them uh, very generously with severance packages and so on. Um, I'm very pleased to report uh, that the content designers have found uh, their next roles. They're excited about the teams they're joining, and I do hope that they take some of these things we learned along the way with them and share them with their new teams. I have a question about org models. I wonder if you mm. could comment on. Um, in your ideal setup, are content designers fully embedded in products, product teams, to the point that they're almost siloed from each other, or do they still report back to a centralized team? Like, how do you balance centralization versus embedding? Yeah, so at our scale, we're still pretty small. Um, our you know global design team is uh, about 30 people. So um, all of the content designers reported into me um, uh, while they were fully embedded in their product team. Um, you know, uh, if we you know were to grow to you know 80 or 150 or more than that, you know perhaps things would change. But for now, that sort of model made sense to us. I, I could see it working very differently in the future. Um, one of the points of this talk is that by blurring the lines between content design and product design, it's very easy for me to imagine a product design manager managing content designers. Uh, likewise, I manage all product designers now. I don't manage content designers at all. Um, so that, I think, is one of the benefits of this model, which is it allows people to move back and forth. We simply see content design as being like a, a sort of specialization of product design, just as something like um, prototyping or perhaps UI design or, or interaction design. Those could also be specializations for us in the future. But for now, all of our designers need to be able to work in the sort of full stack product design model. I kind of have one last question, Jonathan, then I'll let you ask if there's topics we want to explore. But uh, did product designers ever feel threatened uh, as content designers step up and blur the roles? Was it kind of, did anybody take it as like a slight on their own competence to, you know, do the whole product design themselves? No. And, you know, I get this question a lot. And so I imagine that there are a lot of organizations out there uh, where this idea of impact, we all, we always talk about this in in tech companies and tech orgs, impact, we all got to drive impact, where's the impact, let's chase the impact and so on. Um, I think a lot of organizations view impact as being a finite resource, meaning that if, you know, person A comes along and achieves some impact, it means there's less for person B uh, to achieve in their in their own efforts. Uh, and we simply don't view it that way. So for us, you know, if the product succeeds um, and if everyone on the team has been doing their part, uh, we reward them. Uh, they, they've done the thing. They've solved the problem. That's amazing. And so it doesn't matter to us. It does not matter that maybe this product had two designers, one being a product designer and one being a content designer. And because of that, both roles are actually incentivized to support each other, but not just to get the design right, not to make a beautiful design file with all the right words and all the, the lines and boxes and arrows in the right places. It is to solve the problem, to achieve product level success. And because of that, they are also incentivized to work with engineers, with product managers, researchers, and so on. So um, 
for us, and, and maybe it is an artifact of our culture, again, your mileage may vary, this could work out differently elsewhere. Um, our, our product designers were very happy to be pair designing with content designers. Likewise, our content designers are very happy to have their product designers uh, right there next to them so that they could work out these things together. And what we saw was a lot of skills transfer between content design to product design, product design to content design. Um, so for us, it was sort of best case scenario. We were able to uh, solve our biggest problems and our highest priority products more quickly with better working relationships and people grew as professionals along the way. And it was fun uh, because usually our designers just work one to a team, but when content design was allocated to a product team, then there would be two designers. Um, and so uh, for us, it was win, 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 win. I know I said that last one was my pre my last question, but I yeah. just thought of one more. You said you're on kind of a mission to promote and evangelize this model. Does it solve the value problem for content designers in in terms of like feeling much more valued and and uh, respected and kind of integrated and important in an organization? For us, it did. Um, that's not in particular a problem. I'm super interested in solving. And let me like parse that a bit because I, I know that sounds a bit wrong. I'm interested in these problems I talked about earlier, um, specifically the ones about around things like opportunity for product level impact, not just for content impact, um, opportunity for career growth, uh, solving the unequal pay problem and avoiding burnout. Mm. Um, I think if you do those things, uh, and if you solve those problems, then it is a very likely outcome that content design will be valued within an organization. But this idea of like content designers just being valued alone was not something that I focused on explicitly. I was sort of focused on these other kinds of things. So for me, it was more important that content designers um, be paid equally uh, to other roles on a product team. Um, that they knew what their career path was and what the expectations were, what success looks like and growth looks like, and that uh, they would be equal partners on a product team. In fact, for us, they were part of the product team's leadership. Um, and so they would have a stake in solving problems, not just in writing or, or otherwise creating good content. So those were the key things I went after. So a little bit different in focus, but probably with the same outcome would be my guess. So I do think this model works. Uh, at the very least, it worked in Intercom. I would love to see other organizations try this, experiment with it, remix it, build on it, um, come to their own conclusions. Uh, because chances are their cultures, their opportunities, their problems to solve, really different from ours. Be fascinating to see how this model plays out in other organizations, cultures all around the world. Well, thanks, Jonathan. You're you're very insightful and inspiring. Um, are there any topics that Jeez. we didn't cover that you think like we're missing here in this short conversation? Well, something I'm curious about is, uh, uh, you know, right at the beginning we kind of clarified like, oh, you know, you're working in technical writing, uh, I, I was working in content design. Um, and then I talked a bit about like, oh, you know, at Intercom, we kind of blurred these content design and product design roles. Um, I, I see a lot of similar blurring between tech writing and content design. Um, you said at the beginning, even like, hey, some tech writers do UX writing or UI content and so on. So I, I'm curious uh, uh, because I, I, 
I'm no longer in touch with the tech writing community, haven't been an active tech writer since the late 90s, uh, so I'm a bit behind the times. Um, but uh, what do career paths look like? Um, are there tech writers who want to get closer to product and move closer to things like content design or product design or even product management? Uh, or are tech writers um, sort of generally speaking happy where they are and, and there's a very like clear and effective way of growing in your career as a tech writer? That is a great question. And as far as the career growth path, definitely some writers specialize. Some people find that they love usability. Other people find they love tools and become, you know, tools mavens. Other people maybe maybe do move into product design. Um, I've, I've known a tech writer who, who did become a product manager. Mm, but there's really not a great growth path for tech com. Really, you, you start out as a junior tech writer. You become a senior tech writer. You take on, you know, as you described, you take on more projects. I've decided to specialize in API documentation. Um, mm. So, like, you could spend your life just learning all the tech that you would want to to be competent, you know, documenting some developer product. Um, I also really like the tools aspect, but I don't know that both of those really grow your career. I mean, they open doors. There's definitely a high demand for API tech writers in the Silicon Valley area. Um, but yeah, I mean, at a certain point, once you have a, a job in your kind of focus, there's not really a next level that you climb. Maybe you become a manager, a team lead. You know, maybe after that you become a manager of managers and then you're writing strategic reports and you're suddenly like very disconnected from the roots. So, I mean, there's a principle, the Peter principle, you're managed toward incompetence or something, right? Where you like <laughs> move, move out. The higher you climb, the farther you are away from your original sort of discipline. But, uh, yeah, sorry, I don't have a great answer to that. Yeah, and, and I'm sure it depends, you know, person by person or maybe org by org or, or both. But um, I, I am curious about that. I'm I'm curious, like, you know, tech writing, like I, I'm thinking back to like, you know, Society for Technical Communication, like this, this organization, the discipline has been around for decades, decades, may, maybe a century. I, I have no idea. But like, Technical communication, technical writing is a much older discipline than, you know, what we call product design or certainly content design or, you know, interaction design. You know, those things are all uh, made, you know, they, they all became things within the last 20, 30 years, maybe. Um, but tech writing or technical communication has been around for a very long time. And so I'm wondering what's holding it back. If career paths aren't clear or um, if maybe, uh, uh, you know, the, the routes to um, seniority or, or to, um, you know, furthering your interest in, in tech writing, if those aren't clear, I wonder what could be done about that. Um, like, I, I wonder, you know, what, what are sort of the emerging thoughts in terms of tech writing career paths? Because I would guess that not everyone wants to manage or be a director or, or things like that. Um, and so what does it look like if you really accelerate into that craft aspect and continue being like a, an individual contributor? Wow. I'm going to have to think about that one for probably the next few years. <laughs> no, <laughs> Maybe that's I, a good future show. You could do a show on that. I, I mean, honestly, I, I don't, I'm not sure that I want to do something that doesn't involve 
being an individual contributor. I, I, I like writing. I mean, if I had to write a organizational strategic report and, you know, define my tenants and pitch them to senior exec for funding, that doesn't really sound exciting to me. Um, I do like the idea of solving problems and I really like that focus on the product and the product success. So maybe, uh, maybe this more integrated, uh, role where the technical writer is doing more product design is something that, that is highly worthwhile. For example, with the API documentation focus, there's not much on improving the developer experience. You know, we always hear about usability and the user experience. We imagine some like user interface that's being improved. You take that away and you have code and it's like, wait a minute, what am I supposed to do? And yet the implementation for different code projects can vary dramatically. Uh, so I think, you know, I've just chosen to specialize more in, in the API field and maybe the developer experience area. How do you make something easier for people to implement an API? That's a challenging topic, especially, you know, not being an engineer. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think no matter what, if you're engaged in a, in a project, you know, trying to solve a problem, there's certain satisfaction and value from that that I think um, is worthwhile. And exactly how high you climb up in, like, an org ladder, uh, I think... Once people get to a certain salary, maybe that becomes less important. They're like, they're comfortable. They enjoy what they're doing. They don't need to be an executive. They don't need to be a, you know, a high project leader. But, I don't know, different paths. And you definitely highlighted a problem that, that, that exists. Um, you know, what, I, what that makes me wonder, uh, you know, like you were talking about engineering for a second there, is, you know, are there things we could borrow from other disciplines that might make sense for tech writing? So in engineering, there are often levels of, you know, things like architects, principal engineers, or fellows, things like that. Are those models, uh, things, uh, maybe even archetypes, are those archetypes that could apply to technical communication? And can you imagine what what might a principal tech writer do or a, or a tech writing fellow or, or so on? I'd, I'd be curious to see what folks think about that. It's interesting you, you kind of bring that up because... Uh... At most companies, there's like a leveling up to, um, path, right? You start out with maybe a level four and a five and a six and a seven. And most organizations have it described. What is a level seven technical writer, a principal technical writer? What do they do? And uh, a lot of times these people end up being managers of managers or they manage right. a ton of people. They've been around a long time. They've kind of climbed the seniority. But um, I've always thought, well, if you don't want to go the people manager route, how do you influence um, in a way that's worthy of being called a principal uh, writer? I think another area besides the developer experience with just a single project is managing a developer portal and understanding like how these pieces all fit together. Because that's another area of the org that sort of uh, people drop the ball on. Um, you have all these independent siloed teams all just kind of pushing content into a, a central place and calling that a developer portal without any sense of what are the user journeys and the flows in this thing and who's managing that. I, I really want to call myself a developer portal strategist because mm. I like that that picture. So maybe that's the direction I'm going. Problem is, who owns that? You know, who owns the de the developer or documentation portal in a company? Often 
people own different pieces. Nobody owns the whole thing. And that's part of the, the problem, right? And uh, I'm not saying it, it's universal or anything. A lot of organizations do have teams kind of responsible for that, but it's it's harder to find a clear owner. You sort of need somebody at a higher level who's going to champion that and sort of sponsor yeah. that. And in order to get a C-level doc champion, you, you kind of have to earn them. Um, it's, it's culture that you have to cultivate. Think of some companies, it blows my mind, but like Stripe and Twilio are often heralded as you know prime examples of documentation. And when you find out like how many resources they have, it is insane. Uh, you know, like I think somebody mentioned that Twilio had like 15 different writers and Stripe has like different team, different writer teams. Like, oh, yeah, we've got our doc, our tools team and uh, we've got some some strategists and then we have our writers team. And I'm like, yeah, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an army of one here. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, you know, uh, organizations uh, organizations often have a hard time learning, right? Like, I, I think that's the key problem here. And so we have these notions of like, oh, we need a sponsor or a champion, which is all true, at least in my, my limited experience. Um, what I really want to have happen, though, is for organizations to get better at learning. And my guess is that the more that um, we talk about this, try experiments, share the stories about outcomes the faster, hopefully, maybe that's optimistic, but I think the faster they will end up learning and making some change. But the other thing is that organizations also learn through pain. Um, and so sometimes uh, the only way for an organization to learn is uh, by people leaving it. And uh, then it's easier for them to acknowledge that, hey, there's a gap here. There's a problem. We really need to focus on this and solve it. Interesting. Hey, uh, Jonathan. Um, yeah. As we wrap up, like, uh, can you tell me how people can get to know you? Like the resources, wh where should they go to watch how to, how we destroyed content design? Follow you, learn more about content design in general. Yeah, sure. Uh, of course. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Jay Coleman, no e, and uh, you can uh, watch this presentation and look at the slides. There's video as well as all of the related resources all together in one place at Go dot inter dot com slash destroy all one word <laughs> well thank you so much i really enjoyed our conversation and i appreciate your time to uh you know inspire us so thank you thank you tom much appreciated